Worship is the beginning and the end of missions. King Jesus commissioned his followers to take his gospel to the ends of the earth so that all people might join their voices in praise to the one true God. Isaiah 42, verses 10 and 12, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in his coastlands. This is the call of missions. It is an invitation. It is an exhortation to see God as he is and to respond with exaltation. It is a call to worship. This is where missions begins. Where does missions end? The Apostle John got a glimpse of where missions ends near the end of his life. John was once in the spirit and saw a door standing open in heaven through which he could see a throne. There was a being seated on the throne whose appearance was of jasper and carnelian. Around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Surrounding the throne were four living creatures with six wings and eyes all around. Between the throne and the four living creatures, John saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. John sees the lamb take the scroll that no one else could open. He took it from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Once he takes the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fall down before the lamb. Then they sing a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to break its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This is where missions ends. The Great Commission will be complete. Acts 1.8 will be realized. The goal of missions will be fulfilled when the gospel has gone forth throughout the earth and some from every tongue and some from every tribe and some from every nation are gathered around worshiping the one seated on the throne as he is. As the maker of heaven and earth as the Alpha and Omega, as the Ancient of Days, as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, that is, as the King of Glory himself. In today's passage, Paul and Barnabas set out across the Mediterranean Sea on their way to the edges of the known world. 
We might say that Paul's first missionary journey here in Acts 13 is the beginning of the end of global missions. The gospel has reached Jerusalem. The gospel has reached Judea. The gospel has reached Samaria. And now it is on its way to the very ends of the earth. Our passage this morning is Acts 13, verses 1 through 12. Hear the word of God. Who reigns in heaven over the earth. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. And he was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Lead us now then, Spirit. same spirit who spoke in this corporate gathering that we read about in Acts 13. Would you speak to us this very morning, I pray, in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. So we can summarize the essence of our passage our main point like this. The spreading of the gospel often faces opposition. So we need to be prepared to confront others directly through the power of the Holy Spirit. The spreading of the gospel often faces 
opposition. So we need to be prepared to confront others directly through the power of the Holy Spirit. In our passage, we'll see that the Spirit speaks, the Spirit sends, the Spirit scolds, and the Spirit saves. We'll begin with verses 1 through 3. Now, to get us back kind of into the flow of the book of Acts, recall that the church had spread out from Jerusalem because of the persecution directed toward the apostles as a result of the martyrdom of Stephen. Now, when the Jerusalem church, which was kind of the home base, heard that people were coming to faith in Christ in Antioch, they sent Barnabas there to check it out. From there, Barnabas goes to Tarsus, which was Saul's hometown, and gets Saul or Paul and brings him back with him to Antioch. While they are in Antioch, a prophetic word goes forth from a man named Agabus that a famine will break out over the land, which proves to be true. The believers give as they are able, and they send Saul and Barnabas to Jerusalem with a gift for the disciples who are in the region to aid in their relief from the famine. Which brings us to verse 25 of chapter 12. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So they're back in Antioch. Our verses open with a corporate gathering of believers worshiping the Lord. Now, they were in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, which is awesome. The gospel can penetrate anywhere. And Saul, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart from me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now, these opening verses, as I was thinking about them and and praying about them this week, they were a, a powerful reminder for me personally, if not a direct rebuke. Consider that as the believers gathered for worship on a typical Sunday, the God of great glory, the Lord of hosts, he moved in and he moved among the believers that morning. Consider as far back as the Exodus, that the ultimate reason God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt was so that they could gather together in his presence to worship him. God said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so they can worship me. Consider that it was the sacrificial blood 
of a lamb applied to wooden doorposts at Passover that allowed God's people to escape the judgment of God executed by the angel of death so they could flee from Pharaoh and go and worship the Lord in the wilderness. Consider that as far back as the opening chapters of Genesis, that blood was spilled by God to cover the shame of his people as a result of their sin, and that he promised to send one from the seed of a woman who would crush the head of the serpent so that fellowship could be restored with God among his people. Consider the privilege that it is to gather together as the people of God in worship and consider what it cost to make that happen. Consider that when a small group of the people of God gathered for worship here in Acts 13, that the Holy Spirit spoke. And what he said, as, as, as understated as it may seem right here in this passage, changed the course of human history. There's a good chance that you're holding a Bible with a map in it that describes what happened next sequentially as a result of the Holy Spirit speaking in this corporate gathering. So consider, Paul's first missionary journey was launched the missionary journey that, that changed the world forever was launched when a small group of people gathered to praise God and to pray to God and to proclaim the word of God 2,000 years ago. And this is where I sensed the challenge, if not rebuke. Just like the believers, as we learned last week, you'll remember that the believers were praying that Peter would be delivered from prison. And Peter is delivered from prison. And the believers don't believe it. <laughs> the irony. What was happening? They were praying with earnest but not with any expectation that God would actually answer their prayers. In a similar way, we too, as the people of God, can gather together to worship the Lord of glory in earnestness, but without any real expectation. Despite the promise of his presence among us, as we gather in worship as the people of God to worship the most powerful, most holy, most wonderful, most good, most joyful being in the universe. As we gather together for the purpose for which God's people were delivered from bondage. As we gather together to enjoy the presence of God purchased by the blood of his son. We need to ask ourselves, even if I'm earnest in my worship, do I have any real expectation that this God is going to move among his people this very morning? 
In Rock 101, we teach that there are, are three reasons that we gather on Sunday morning. You probably get the first one, to worship God. The second reason is so that we might receive from God whatever it is that he desires to communicate us to us by the power of his spirit through his word. The third reason we gather as a body is so that we can minister to one another, led by the Spirit of God, in the very presence of God. I 100% agree with what Nick said earlier. Clearly, not everything that happens within the body of Christ happens during a couple of hours on Sunday morning. But there could be great things that happen every single morning because of the greatness of the God that we worship. We say by faith that God is present among us by his spirit. Should we not expect that he would do glorious things among us? Why not every single Sunday? Why not Every day for that matter. But we as the people of God are gathered together for the reason for which our lives were purchased. To worship him. Brothers and sisters, may we be open to whatever it is that God desires to do among us as the people of God when we gather. If we are open to receiving from God personally this morning, as we gather, are we also open to giving to others in the name of the Lord? What if one of the reasons that God has you among the people of God today is so that you might encourage someone else within the body that desperately needs to be encouraged? Ask the Lord. Ask the Lord as we are worshiping him. What he desires to give to you. What do you need to receive from the Lord to be strengthened in your faith? to be convicted of sin, or how might God want to use you today among the people of God to build up, to strengthen, to edify his church? There is, there is too much at stake every single time we gather as the people of God not to come ready to worship in earnest and not to come ready to worship with expectation. I am not presuming anything upon God. I'm saying that given the greatness of the God that we worship, who is present among us, might not he desire to do extraordinary things among us? It's one of the reasons the writer of Hebrews warns the people of God not to neglect the gathering of God's people as is the habit of some. May God give us much grace for this purpose and praise God for his son who stands in our stead when we come to worship the Lord without earnestness or expectation. Thank God for the gospel. Worship is the initiating fuel and the final goal of missions. God wants to be glorified among his people and among all people. So what do you think God desires to do among his people here this very morning.
being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. So we know that the Spirit spoke in verse 2, and here we see that Luke attributes the sending to the Spirit in verse 4. Now, as it relates to the geography, that is, how did they decide where they were going to go? Because as far as the text is concerned, it doesn't seem like the Holy Spirit made clear where he was specifically directing them. The believers responded with fasting and prayer to the Spirit's directive in verse 3. And practically speaking, they went to Seleucia because it was a port city. So they could get on a boat, they could get on a ship, and begin to sail to the ends of the earth. And first, they went to Cyprus, which is the large island that you can see sitting in the middle of the Mediterranean on the map. Now, the detail that I want us to consider as we're thinking about this, and as we're considering the outworking of the plan of God whether that's the strategy, the route, the destination, is that these things come as a convergence of factors that include the specific people involved seeking the Lord and cooperating with the Spirit. So the Spirit is doing a glorious work. He's being very clear to send them out. But how do they know where to go? How do they decide where to go? I mean, clearly they're praying and fasting and putting themselves in a posture to hear from the Lord. But there are a lot of factors that come into play. We have similar things happening in our body. Uh, at the end of second service last week, we prayed for Benjamin Hendrich. He's going on a mission trip to the Carolinas. We prayed. We commissioned him to go, believing that God would use him for his eternal purposes over the next several weeks. Seniors, Patrick just prayed over you this morning. The reason that he commissioned you is because no matter what you decide to study, no matter where you end up working, the most important thing that is happening in the world at every moment is what is happening with the advancement of the gospel. We just prayed for Kevin Fowler. His going, his ministry is going to involve some staying and supporting others so that they can continue to go. Ben and, Betchy, Betchy, ben and Becky Batchelor are leaving in a couple months to go to Brazil. We'll hear more from them in the, in the coming weeks. But Ben told me this is exactly his experience. It's exactly their experience. Logistical details. Particular people. Continuously seeking the Lord that led them to the exact location where they're going in the exact ministry that God has called them to. I think the actual logistics and the locations are in some measure the result of the people they encounter, that is Barnabas and Saul, and perhaps even where these guys are from. Consider that Barnabas was from Cyprus. 
So they land on the east side of the island and make their way across to the west towards Paphos, which is where they encounter Sergius Paulus, who is from Pisidian Antioch. The reason that's important is because that's essentially where they go next, by way of Perga and Pamphylia. Could it be that these brothers wanted their family members and fellow villagers to hear the good news of the gospel? So they said, I'm begging you, brothers, take the gospel to my family so that they might hear the good news about Jesus Christ. I think that's entirely plausible. What about you this morning? Could it be that God's kingdom will advance, the gospel will go forth simply because God has placed upon your heart someone in your family or at your work or in your community that desperately needs to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? I not only think that's plausible, I think that's entirely probable. I mean, sometimes the Spirit expressly says no to our plans. As in the case of Acts 16.7, which we'll come to in a little while, where the Spirit of Christ would not allow the disciples to go into Bithynia. But so often, the leading of the Holy Spirit happens as he directs us while we're walking. Likely, if you're sitting home waiting for God to do something in your life, the Holy Spirit is not sitting on the couch next to you eating chips, right? He's active. He's out. He's moving. He will lead. He will direct. In any case, I think it adds so much just texture and richness to our understanding about what, what's actually happening here in Acts as the, as the church is expanding in the first century. Yes, the Holy Spirit is leading these men. Absolutely, unequivocally true. Luke tells us that. But these are real people with real jobs, with real families. They're from real towns. They had real fears. They had real hopes and real desires for, for their future and for the people with whom they were sharing the gospel. I think it helps us to, to, to get a good feel for, for what it would have looked like as the gospel went forward, probably in simple, everyday conversations and prayers, one after the other. It might even provide insight into situations as dramatic as Barnabas and Paul's sharp agreement that we'll come to at the end of Acts 15. Not just direction from the Holy Spirit, but real people, real lives, differing opinions. What do we do next? Now, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, and from this point on Luke will refer to him, as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? 
as they move across the island, they encounter a false prophet, a magician. The best way to think about that is he's a sorcerer. His name is Bar-Jesus, or Son of Salvation. Literally, Son of Yahweh saves. His name and his attempt to oppose the gospel message is met with a spirit-led scolding or rebuke from Paul. Now, sometimes the Lord Jesus himself would be extraordinarily direct with those who were opposing him. But where have we heard this straight path language before? Do you recall? Remember that when the crowds asked John the Baptist if, if he himself was the Christ, he quoted the prophet Isaiah saying, I am one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the path of the Lord. For this ministry, John was the one who heralded the coming of the Lord and the gospel of the kingdom and was commended by Jesus. John's ministry was to point people to the Messiah, to the Christ, and in his case, literally. <laughs> because when Jesus showed up, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he baptized Jesus with his own hands. What an unbelievable privilege. For his ministry, he received the highest commendation from Jesus for his efforts. Of John the Baptist, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Matthew eleven eleven. In 180 degree contrast, the false prophet who deceitfully bore the title of the son of salvation. Think about how offensive that is to God. The one who opposed the gospel or made crooked the way of the Lord, Elymas the magician, he received not commendation, but direct condemnation through the Holy Spirit from the Lord's apostle. Paul's confrontation, his rebuke was precise, it was truthful, it was direct, and it was not nice. One brother has said, there is no 11th commandment that says, thou shalt always be nice. Now, look, we are called to be kind and compassionate. We're called to love our enemies, and we are commanded to be convictional about the truths that we believe. However, we need to consider the context in which we currently live. We have things like the Equality Act looming, which Al Mohler has called the greatest threat to religious liberty in decades. When the Lord's biblical truth is opposed, we need, as the people of God, to be prepared to directly oppose the opposition. In the coming months and years, when other professing believers and, and, and leaders in particular when they give in to cultural pressure to conform to the standards of the world, we need, as the people of God, to stand ready to oppose their opposition directly 
directly with precision and directly with power. Now, some of you may be familiar with the name Elder D.J. Ward. He was a Reformed African-American pastor who preached some at Southern Seminary and even a little bit in Oak Ridge. Now, Ward was fiery even as a young man, and he had a tremendous passion for sound doctrine. One of his favorite professors in seminary was a man named Dr. McCoy. Dr. McCoy called Ward Little Spurgeon, even though Ward had never heard of Spurgeon. But when Elder Ward took his Old Testament class, his professor was a man named Dr. Richardson, who was from Vanderbilt University. When Dr. Richardson began his class on Genesis, he said to the class, Regarding the first 11 chapters of Genesis, the best thing you can do with them is rip them out and burn them. Provoked, (laughs) Ward directly opposed the professor in class, calling him an unsaved, lying, uncircumcised Philistine. And he was suspended for two weeks because of his comments. (laughs) But when his mentor, Dr. McCoy, heard about it, he said to others within earshot of Ward, like I said, little Charles Spurgeon. (laughs) Now, yes, we certainly need to consider the context. We need to exercise wisdom. We need to exercise discernment. But in the coming days... Christians will be called to do much more than just keep our heads down and try not to make waves at work or in the public square. So Christian, lift your head. Be bold because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Ask the Lord what he desires of you and fear not for your God is with you. The Spirit will give you words. And he will honor a faithful testimony to his word no matter what happens next. We need to be the the most loving people imaginable. Found anywhere on the face of the earth. And we need to be the most deeply convictional people as it regards the truth of any people anywhere on earth. More and more, my hope is that as we continue to walk through the book of Acts, God is stirring in you a convictional resolve, a boldness to stand for the truth of God's word. We need to be ready to oppose those who oppose the gospel with wisdom and winsomeness and fervency and clarity and with the directness that their opposition deserves. So pray. Pray the words of Paul at the end of Ephesians 6. Pray that we may all be given grace in the opening of our mouths to boldly proclaim the truths of God's word and the mysteries of the gospel as we ought to speak. Ephesians 6, verses 19 and 20. As this unfolded before the proconsul, 
he believed. Verse 12. When he saw what had occurred, he believed, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So it was a combination between this miraculous work and the teaching that he had heard about Jesus. Those two things combined, and he believed. His eyes were open. Light shone into his heart, and he believed. And that is contrasted with the darkness that fell upon Elamos, which was illustrative of the darkness of Israel. He was groping around in the dark, looking for someone to lead him by the hand. But his darkness, much like Paul's, was a temporary blindness, which means that the grace of the gospel was extended even to him. As he groped around for someone to lead him, what this false prophet ultimately needed was to hear the word of the Lord speaking through one of his true prophets. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. The prophet goes on to say of the servant of the Lord who was to come, he will open the eyes of the blind to lead them in a way they do not know, in paths that they have not known. I will guide them, Isaiah 42. And the prophet was speaking ultimately of Jesus Christ, our beloved Lord. So whether Elamas persisted in his opposition, we don't know. But we do know that the eyes of Sergius Paulus were opened. What about you? If you're sitting here this morning or if you are hearing me through the live stream or maybe in the coming days you will come upon this message through the sovereignty of God and by the grace of God. If you are opposing the gospel message, I want to communicate a reality to you that if you're thinking clearly, should keep you awake tonight and every night until it is resolved in your mind. By opposing God, you are putting yourself in a position to be opposed by God himself. You may think that somehow your opposition to God is somehow doing damage to the greatness of his glory and his reputation throughout the earth. I can assure you it is not. Therefore, the tragedy is that your efforts to resist God are utterly futile. Further, if God opposes you and you do not humble yourself so that he might pour out his mercy and his grace upon you, do not fool yourself into thinking that God's opposition of you will end at your death. For immediately following your death, you will awaken to the reality that God will continue to oppose you in hell. He will do so without pause. He will do so without mercy. And he will oppose you without 
end. If you are opposing God because you believe that you have intelligent reasons to do so, first know that God is not impressed in the slightest, in the intellectual reasons why you think you are justified in opposing him. And second, take heart. Rejoice as you hear the account of Sergius Paulus, himself an intelligent man who was changed by the good news of the gospel. Look, whether you see yourself as intelligent or not, there are brilliant people who are converted every single day. They are saved, they are saved every day without compromise without compromise of their intellectual powers, which, by the way, are a gift from God. He gives you the intelligence to make rational arguments against him that are ultimately futile. So I'm pleading with you, even at this moment, to come to the one in whom are found all the wisdom and treasures of knowledge, Namely, God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one whom we love, the one who first loved us. He is the reigning King of glory, and of his reign there is no end. So brothers and sisters, the spreading of the gospel often faces opposition. So we need to be prepared to confront others very directly through the power of the Holy Spirit. But because the Spirit, because the Spirit is the one who speaks and because the Spirit is the one who sends, because the Spirit is the one who scolds whenever necessary, and because the Spirit is the one who miraculously saves, we can be confident that He will accomplish His purposes in us and through us forever. So let's not only worship in earnest as we gather together. Brothers and sisters, let's elevate our expectations about what God may want to do among us. Would you pray with me? Father, I simply want to ask that you would do whatever you desire to do among us. But help us to perceive, help us to be acutely aware of the gravity, of the greatness of your glory. Spirit, would you, would you speak to your people now? Would you prompt, prompt people within our body to minister to one another, to offer a word of encouragement or prayer, to bless their brothers and sisters in your presence? Jesus Christ, our powerful King and our precious Savior, 
Help us to trust in you now as we respond in worship as the gathered people of God. Thank you for offering your life in our place to make it possible. So we praise you, Father, Son, and Spirit, the one true God. In Jesus' name, amen.